All right, we're going to talk this morning about how to read the Bible through Hebrew eyes. And what I'm going to endeavor to do is I'm going to endeavor to give you tools that will change the way you read the Bible forever. Now, before we get into those specific tools and those uh, things that we need to talk about, we need to have some introductory thoughts. And, and let me just give you a couple of them. Um, one, when we're talking about God's word, we have to be humble. There has to be a certain humility. Uh, a lot of times, uh, the Bible is full of statements like this. And God said to Moses, and God said to Elijah, and God said to this, and, and we preach this stuff, especially we preachers, and we preach this stuff, and in the middle of all that, because now we have Bibles everywhere, you can go online and download free Bibles. You can do that. You can do that. If you have an iPhone, you can have all the translations flipped around into all kinds of different ways. It's incredible what we could do with God's Word. And because it has become common, we have lost some of its sacredness, and therefore we profaned it. To profane something means to treat something that is sacred as if it is common. And because, see, in, in, in the Bible days, everybody didn't have a Bible. They, they, there was one community Bible, and then um, everybody memorized the Torah, and they, this, the fathers quoted it to the sons and, and so forth, and, and that's how they just sort of carried on. Um, us, we, we can, we've gotten to a point where we can read. And God said to Moses, I am the Lord, your God, with no consciousness whatsoever that the words that are coming out of your mouth are actually words that God himself spoke. Now, wait a minute. There has to be a reverence for that, a humility. Uh, when I was in, uh, when I was in Bible college, um, you know, I, I've got a lot of degrees and different things like that. But one of the things that, that theologians would do, they'd sit around and they would try, this was the phrase they would use. We're going to try to, we're going to sit down and we're going to talk about this passage and we're going to try to nail this passage. And, and what they meant by that is, is we're going to try to come up with the one correct meaning of this passage. Um, give me a break. Like, as if a human being could ever, ever, ever come up with the full truth that God is trying to communicate. As a matter of fact, God is so big. This is one of the things the rabbi said, that God is so big that in order to communicate with man, he chose to limit himself to the language of men. So, so because God, who is infinitely big, chose to limit himself to the language of men, they said that every scripture is like a diamond with 70 facets. And it depends on how you turn it as to how the light goes through those 70 facets. They said that every scripture has four levels of meaning with possibly 70 applications. You might come up with one of them. But here's the problem with, with European white people Christianity is once we come up with our meaning, we think we nailed it and anybody who doesn't agree with us is now out and we are now in. That we're in and everybody else is out. And I would suggest to you that in order to read the Bible through Hebrew eyes, if you really want to know how to do that, that we have to step back and we have to have sort of a, 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 a holy reverence for the fact that a lot of what we're saying is direct quotes from God himself. So if we're going to directly quote what God said, we had better say it in the tone that he said it in. Which is, I mean, how many of you know how easy it is to manipulate someone else's words? All you have to do is change the verbal tone. That's all you have to do. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. So if God says these words, we had better state them in the tone in which he said it. The rabbis called it the disposition of Messiah. The disposition of Messiah. The, the, the test of ministry in the first century 
was called the disposition of Messiah, particularly prophecy. If someone gave a prophecy in the first century, they would test the prophecy. And so they would have a bench of three people. The bench of three would test the prophecy. And the first test of prophecy was not, is it true? And it was not, does it line up with scripture? It was not. Those were questions they might have asked later. The first test of any prophecy was, was that delivered in a manner consistent with the disposition of Messiah? In other words, was it compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness? For if we are quoting the words of God in a mean hard-hearted, judgmental way, we are missing the entire point of the heart of God. We are using his words to communicate something he would have never intended. It requires humility. It requires humility. It requires an incredible sense that we are just human beings. I would say this, to learn the, to, to learn to read the Bible like a Hebrew, we have to lose our addiction to being right. We are so addicted to being right, particularly about God. And I, I can prove this by the amount of hours that I spend warding off stupid questions about controversial things that at the end of the day don't matter. Why does that matter to you so much? Are you that addicted to being right? Uh, let me show you an illustration that I first saw, uh, read about really in, in a C.S. Lewis book, but I didn't understand it until I saw a pastor explain it. And once it explained to me, it really helped me because as a pastor, one of the things I worried about was, what if I'm in error? And it, because I started realizing that um, I, somebody gave me a tape that I did. Now, this is how old it was. It was a tape, okay? Somebody gave me a tape I did like eight years ago. And, and I listened to it, and I could not believe what I was saying to people. I could not believe it. Now, so I went to, to, my, to my mentor. His name's Ed Nelson. And I, I went to him and I said, well, I said would you, can you believe? I, I do not belong in, in doing this. He said, why? I said, I said, listen to what I'm saying to people. At the time, I really thought this was true. And, and, and he said, well, I'm glad. He said, if you, if you were listening to something you did eight years ago and nothing changed, that would mean that you really thought you figured it out. The, the, the greatness of God is that he takes pleasure in our journey towards him, not in us being right or correct. One of the things the rabbis would say is that if we spent a day today talking about God, which we are, if we spend today talking about God, they would assume that we were wrong. Why? Because we're human beings. We're these finite, small little people trying to get our head around a great, big God. They would assume we were wrong. And the pleasure of God is not found in us somehow being correct, especially if you define correct as without error. Are you kidding me? And if you're the one guy here or the one guy listening, if you're that, if you're that guy who believes that you're the appointed prophet for the whole thing to, to purge the church of error, give me a break. Let me help you. You are wrong too. You, what, you, do, you, do you think that your understanding about God is, is complete? Like, I mean, honestly, if this circle represents everything that can possibly ever be known about God, if that circle represents all the knowledge and revelation that could ever possibly be known about God, if that's, if that's what that circle represents, and I handed you a pen, and I said, I want you to color in the amount of it that you know. Hey, here's mine. And here would be yours. And here would be somebody else's. 
And, and Pastor Clark's sitting here, so we'll give him that. <laughs> right? I mean, I mean, are we overstating this at all? And so at the end of the day, there's a lot of white spots here, isn't there? And, and so can we just fairly say that for the white spots, we could do this? That we can say, hey, we're just in a journey? Let, let me see if I can illustrate it this way. Let's say that we're gods, just for the sake of example. And I am the chairman of the council of the gods. And I declare to you that I am bored. I am bored with you. You are bored with me. So let us create something. Let us create something. So I motion we create something. Somebody else seconds the motion. So let us create something. Let us create people. Where are we going to create them? Let's create them on this board. And so we create people. Let us start with two people. So we create two people. We'll create Joe and we'll create Jane. And Joe and Jane, for the sake of relevance and the time today, we'll say that we make them in our image and in our likeness. And we'll say even that we give them a mental capacity similar to ours. And we do all of this to Joe and Jane and we look back and we say, it is good. It is good. What is the problem with Joe and Jane? The problem with Joe and Jane is they're stuck on the board. Their life is revolved around two dimensions. Can you, can you imagine the things I could say to Joe that would blow his mind? What if I wrote Joe a letter? I said, "Let Joe, I want to tell you about me. I want to reveal who I am to you. Can you imagine the things in that letter that would blow his mind? Just simply because we live in three dimensions and he lives in, in two I mean, can, can you imagine? Like, I could, what if I said, Joe, in my world, I can extend my arm out. Joe goes, unbelievable. That's amazing. This God could extend his arm out. Well, what if I said, Joe, I can be in front of you and behind you all at the same time. Joe goes, that is unbelievable. A lot of the truths I would share with Joe wouldn't make any sense with him. What if I whispered in Joe's ear, Joe, Jane is gorgeous. She's got nice curves. Joe goes, she's a line. <laughs> well, what if I said to Joe, Joe, my ways are high above your ways. In my world, there's an infinite cube all the way around you and you're just a small part of my room joe whoa so what if joe's not getting it how many of you know joe won't even the best hearted joe ain't gonna figure shane out right why because he can't he can't he can't get his head around it uh, mathematicians call it a degree of freedom every dimension adds a degree of freedom let me show you what i mean by that if this is a puzzle space and this is the piece that's supposed to go in that space. And let's say I drew it correctly. All right? So this is the piece that's supposed to go in that space. Is there any way in two dimensions that you can twist that enough to get it in there? No. What do you have to do to get it in there? You need a third dimension. You need to pull it off the board, put it over the top, and press it down. That is a degree of freedom. 
Joe and Jane are missing that degree of freedom to understand how I can be in front of them and behind them all at the same time. It's not that they're stupid, and it's not that they're bad-hearted, and it's not that they're in error. It's just that they can't possibly fathom what it's like to live with another degree of freedom. So if Joe is journeying to this, and he's saying, hey, I wonder what this means, and he starts telling Jane, Jane, I think this is what this means, and it's wrong. Am I mad at him because it's wrong? No, I assume that it'll be wrong. But what, 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 if, what if Jane goes, well, you're in error, and we're, we're not going to have anything to do with you. Well, wait a minute, hold on. This is just a good-hearted human being trying, trying to make sense of a three-dimensional God. What, what, if I, what if I started doing things to get their attention? What if I took my pen and I stuck it through their world? I said, watch this. We're going to get their attention. This is going to be unbelievable. I stick it through their world. What would they see? They would see a pen in two dimensions. What does a pen look like in two dimensions? It's just a series of dots. So Joe says, did you see that? A series of dots that just went through our world. And Jane goes, I think it was bigger than that. I think it was the pen of shame. (laughs) Joe says, what are you smoking? (laughs) That was just a series of dots. Now, who's right and who's wrong? Neither one. Neither one. They're just both trying to make sense of something I did. What if I took your ring? I took that ring and I stuck it through their world. What would they see? They'd see a ring in two dimensions. What does that look like? It looks like one dot that separates into two dots and then goes around and comes back to one dot. Joe says, did you see that? That was a series of dots that went up and then came back down. Jane says, I think that was the ring of Lisa. Joe says, what? I really do. What if I, what if I took my face and I put it this close to their world? Joe says, do you smell that? It's a weird mixture of watermelon and cantaloupe and banana. <laughs> Jane says, no, no, you're missing the bigger point. That, that's, that's the face of shame. He goes, no way. She says, yeah, I can feel his presence. I can't explain it, but I can feel that he's here. Now, who's right and who's wrong? Neither one. We're, we're, just, we're just Joe and Jane. We're just, now, these are the complications that exist when, when a three-dimensional, I'm, I'm, I'm three-dimensional height, width, and depth. I also live in time and all that. But anyway, I'm three-dimensional, and they're two-dimensional. These are the complications that exist when a three-dimensional person tries to communicate with a two-dimensional one. Can you imagine the complications that exist when an infinitely dimensional God tries to communicate with three-dimensional people? Can you imagine that? And then there's people called theologians. They write books called systematic theology. And what systematic theology means is we have figured out a system that God always works in. Really? 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 So, so, so you, 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 listen, you give up a Saturday to come, st- to come study the word. I, I'm assuming you're serious. You know, you, listen, God, listen let, me, let me just help you. Let me free you up, especially if you're the prophet. You have no idea what God does. God does what he likes. Just may as well throw it out here. The Torah says 
do not marry Gentiles and stone prostitutes. This is the word of the Lord. Do not marry Gentiles and stone prostitutes. And the word of the Lord came to Hosea saying, marry that Gentile prostitute. The Torah says, now this is great revelation. You, you paid for a seminar today to hear some revelation. Get ready. Ready? This is great. The Torah says, do not touch your own poop. It's a great idea, right? Why? Because if you're going to be the light of the world, a city set up on a hill, you can't be a group of people fiddling with their poop. That would be weird. And the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, cook food and use poop as fuel. Can you imagine that? What, what if I showed up today and said, listen, listen, I, I, um, I, I have a project the Lord gave us to do. There's buckets at the back. It's a require a toilet visit. People would say, God would never say, really? Never? In your, esti- in your interpretation, in your estimation, in your bias, in your experience, in your Joe and Jane world, no, nah, he wouldn't do that. But Ezekiel, he did. He did. And, and, and would Ezekiel be welcome in our pulpits today? If CNN and the internet were around back then, would you have Ezekiel preach here? Hey, here's the best one. There's this one time in like Acts. Um, Peter shows up at the first assembly of God in Jerusalem. And, and he shows up with a barrel of uh, pork rinds. And they say, you can't do that. He says, why? They said, the Torah strictly forbids it. He says, yeah, but Jesus told me I could. They said, they said when... What, when you were walking with Jesus, he told you you could eat pork rinds? They, Peter says, no. Last night I had a dream, and Jesus told me that I could eat this now. We make that doctrine. Wait, 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 for them? Do you not think the prophet was there? To, 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 I mean, he, he just about got everybody killed doing that stuff. See, see, we've got we've to be springs. We've got we've to realize and have a deep understanding that at the end of the day, we're just Joe and Jane. Sometimes people ask me questions. After something like this, they'll ask me questions. And I've got a great answer for it. <laughs> I'm just Joe and Jane. I'm just Joe and Jane. I'm just a really good-hearted man, and I am. I'm seeking the heart of my God as well as I know how to do. I'm just a good-hearted guy who's really seeking the face of God. And, and in the journey, I'm going to be wrong about a lot of things. And, 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 but, but in my journey, God is just pleased. Listen, this is what they said. That if we, if we spent all day talking about God, they would assume we were wrong. If 90% of everything we say today ends up being wrong, God is still pleased because we spent a day talking about him instead of something else. And so it takes humility, kindness, grace. When we talk about reading the Bible uh, through Hebrew eyes, we have to develop... A heart of humility. So I want to talk about now, as we get into this, I want to talk about euphemisms. I want to talk about euphemisms. Um, Euphemisms are a very important uh, part of speech. They're a very important part of speech. I'll give you the the first euphemism in the Bible. It says, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Eh, This will blow your mind. This blew mine. So 
I'm guessing it's sort of, but anyway, um, it says spirit of God will hover over the, will hover over the waters. The word over there is a special Hebrew word that means the space immediately in front or immediately behind or immediately beside or on either side. So it's, it's a space that you can't tell um, where one thing stops and the other thing starts. Now, mathematicians tell us that, um, that in terms of space, one meter times 10 to the negative 37th power is the shortest possible space. That under the, the biggest of magnifications, under the hugest microscopes, if a space gets any smaller than that, you can't tell the difference between here and there. That's one meter times 10 to the negative 37th power. In terms of time, it's one second times 10 to the negative 42nd power. Times 10 to the negative 42nd power. That, that if, if, a, if a period of time gets any shorter than that, you can't tell the difference between now and then, here and there. So, so this is a space that exists that, that, that even under the greatest magnification, you cannot tell the difference between here and there and now and then. That is where God lives. God lives in that space. He lives in the space that you can't tell where you stop and he starts. So the rabbis came up with a way to explain this by saying that God lives in your breath. Because your breath is something that you can't really tell where you stop and it starts. Your breath goes deep down to every part of you, but then actually comes out and affects everybody else. Uh, the first time that God, uh, first time God revealed his name was to a man named Abraham. He said his name was El Shaddai. The second time was in a burning bush to a guy named Moses. And he said, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My name is yud heh vav heh yud heh vav heh Moses understandably says, no, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was El Shaddai. He knew his history. And he says, listen, I revealed myself as El Shaddai to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but by my name, Jehovah, they didn't know me. So he said his name was Yud, hey, Vav, hey. See, see, Moses was trying to get at the name of God because in Egypt, if you could understand God's name, you could control him. So he was trying to control God. He said, what is your name? He says, my name is Yud, hey, Vav, hey, which in Hebrew phonetically does not even go together. It doesn't even go together. It'd be like me saying, my name is Shesh ben Heaven, Jimen. It, it, doesn't even, it doesn't even fit. He says, my name is Yudhe Vavhe. Yudhe Vavhe. So, so the rabbis looked at that and said, what is God trying to communicate? Yudhe Vavhe. Yud. They said, what is that? Yudhe Vavhe. And they discovered that the name of God was actually breathing the sounds of breath. Yudhe Vavhe. Hey, a later writer said it takes the name of God to sustain life. That it takes the name of God to sustain life. Isn't it interesting that when a baby is born, what is the first thing it has to do? It has to breathe. In other words, it has to say the name of God. What is the last thing you do before you die? You take your last breath. So when you cease to say the name of God, you cease to live. The name of God sustains life. Your life. Isn't it interesting the kindness and the compassion of God? If you were to have coffee today with an atheist, that atheist would be using the very name he doesn't believe in to sustain his life. The very breath it takes an atheist to say there is no God, he's actually using the name of God to sustain his own life. How kind is God? It's breath. It's breath. So that when we take it in, we take it out, you are carrying the name 
of God. How, how do we carry it? How are we communicating? Everything that comes out of our mouth is a communication and that we are the body of Christ, the duplication of him to this whole world. How um, are we doing with that? How are we doing with that? Euphemisms are very important. We use it all the time. We use it all the time. Like if I was to, um, to write uh, Kath here, if I was to write her a letter, and I say, yeah, listen, I got you something, and um, I hope you enjoy it because it cost me an arm and a leg. Cost me an arm and a leg. Can you imagine um, 2,000 years from now, somebody finding that letter and reading it and going, how romantic. (laughs) This guy loved her so much that he was willing to give up his arm and his leg to please her. To please her. Euphemisms. People, theologians, they'll tell me, they'll say, Shane. You know how they talk, you know. Shane. I take the Bible literally. The literal sense is enough for me. Really? What Jesus said, the next time you look at something evil, pluck your eye out. You never see anybody taking that literally. You never see anybody doing that. Right? Euphemisms. They're very, very important. Let me just, I'm going to just start walking through some, uh, and it'll make the Bible sort of start. To, first of all, let's start with, uh, this really isn't a euphemism, but it's very important to understand. The word Torah... The word Torah um, versus the, the word nomos, which is the law of sin and death. In, the Bible, in English Bibles, the word Torah gets translated law. The word nomos gets translated law, and they're two different things. But they become one thing in our head. That, that the Torah is somehow the law of sin and death. Listen, Jesus died to free us from the law of sin and death. But he freed us to live the Torah out. The, the, the Torah... Um, did not mean law at all. It, it, it meant God's teachings and instructions for the best way to live. The Torah, Old and New Testament, was never, ever, never, ever, ever, never, ever, ever, never, ever given to give God's conditions for, for him to like you or for, him, for you to be righteous. Listen, the, the children of Israel were given, they were entrusted with the Torah. They were not made righteous by it. They were entrusted with it. They were made righteous because of a covenant with Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then that covenant was good to his children's 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 children. That covenant was renewed every year on Yom Kippur by bringing a lamb for the sacrifice. In in the Old Testament, let's take the New Testament out for a second. In the Old Testament, they were declared righteous the same way you are. They were declared righteous because they believed God and put their faith in a lamb that was slain. That's it. That's where their righteousness came from. That's where their forgiveness came from. It had nothing to do with keeping the Torah. Nothing to do with it. Righteousness given to you by God had nothing to do with keeping the Torah ever, never, ever, never, ever, never, never, ever. The Torah just simply meant God's teachings and instructions for the best way to live. One form of the word Torah is the word aura, which means light. So all through the scriptures, you see something like you are bearers of light. You are light bearers. He who has been given light to bear, do not hide it under a bushel. Things like this. It's talking about the Torah. It's talking about, here here was the Torah. Let Let me give you a couple of phrases. The Torah was God's summary statement for the best way to live. God's summary statement for the best way to live. Let me say it another way. Now that you're saved, I'll use today's terms. 
now that you're saved, here is the best way to live. It was totally backwards for how we talk. See, we say, go and sin no more so God won't condemn you. That's what we say. If you go and sin no more, God won't condemn you. Jesus said it backwards. I don't condemn you, now go and sin no more. Two totally different things. In other words, Jesus is saying, based on the knowledge that I won't condemn you either way, um, your best life is to go and sin no more. And it is. Paul said it the same way. Oh, there's all those lists in Paul's epistles. Um, flee these things. Flee this and this and this and this. See to it that you have no part of this and this and this and this. In Ephesians, there's a list like that. And then it says this. It says, see to it that you don't have any part of X, Y, Z. See to it that you don't have any part of this. Because it is not conduct that is befitting of saints. In other words, he doesn't say, don't do this and you'll be saints. He says, no, because you're saints, don't live this way. It's the same way we talk about repentance. We say, and, and listen, this is rife all the way through Pentecostalism. It is, it is rife all the way through Christendom. But especially charismatic, Pentecostal, traditional people, this is what they do. They say, if you repent, God will be kind. If you repent, God will be kind. What? As if your actions determine whether God's kind or not? Really? Maybe, maybe God's kind just because he's nice. And maybe the only thing you're missing is a revelation of the kindness of God. And the Bible says that the kindness of God leads us to repentance, not the other way around. We don't repent and God's magically kind? As if we're in a relationship with a God with a personality disorder? Are you kidding me? Imagine... Being in a relationship with a God and he, he, he likes you one minute and you do something bad so he doesn't like you. So you come and say, I'll kill an animal for you. Okay, I like you again. What is that? The book of Hebrews says it this way. He says, didn't you know that it was impossible all along? All along. It was impossible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sin. Which, which if you're a Jew, what are you thinking? Well, why didn't we know that yesterday? We'd have had a lot more to eat. <laughs> what were we doing this for? The book of Hebrews says, but God put that in place to appease your conscience. In other words, you, you needed something to do. God never needed. You think, in Psalm 50 it says, God says, if I was hungry, um, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> like, do you think I need anything? And then it says something like this, what does the Lord require of you? But to love justice and to do mercy to other people and to walk humbly with the Lord, uh, your God. So Torah, let me, let me give you another statement that might help you. Torah was a summary statement of the laws of the universe and how to make them work for you. It's a summary statement of the laws of the universe and how to make them work for you. When you walk outside of Torah, the universe starts to work against you. There's somebody, Listen, you don't really get away with anything, really. Really, the, the laws of the universe start, that, some rabbis called it sowing and reaping. Um, other religions call it karma. It's, it's, it's the idea of, wait a minute, you know, when you, when, when you step outside of the best way to live, it's not that God doesn't forgive you, where grace abounds, sins abound much more. Like heaven, all that, that takes, wait a minute, hold on, it's not about heaven, it's about what kind of hell are you bringing on earth? Wait a minute, hold on. Wait, wait, you, wait, wait, wait a minute, it's the laws of the universe. When you step outside of it, the laws of the universe start to work against you. Some of it's obvious. Like, don't be sexually intimate with your mother. It's in the Torah. Pretty good plan. Pretty good plan. You break that one, 
It's going to work against you for the rest of your life. See, the Torah was all about restoring dignity. It was written to a group of slaves who were slaves for 430 years. 430 years, God's just trying to teach them how to be a human being. I mean, some of the stuff in Leviticus, can we be honest, is obvious. It's just obvious. Who would, why would you have to tell anybody that? Why do, we, why do we feel that way? Because we're way down the line and they've been living this way now for years. But 430 years of slavery in Egypt, God had to treat them. God had to teach them like, okay, listen, if your neighbor has something that you want, you can't just go take it. That's inhuman. If you're stronger than another person, you can't kill people just because you're bigger. That's like inhuman. Um, you, in, in, in Egypt, they were slaves. And so sometimes for sport and sometimes for, for amusement, the Egyptian slave drivers would make them do sexual things with their family or with animals. So in Leviticus, God writes things like, no, 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 don't, don't be. In, you realize 430 years of doing that, you would get numb to it and it would become a way of life. God says, no, 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 that's inhuman. I'm here to restore your dignity, not take it away. You'll never have to live like that ever again, ever again. It was a summary statement for the best way to, to live. Jesus was called the HaTorah. Jesus was called the HaTorah, the, 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 living, the living, breathing Torah. He was meant to show what the world what it looks like if someone lived it out. Everything in Jesus' life goes back to the Torah, even his birth. In Luke chapter 2, it talks about his birth. It says, after eight days, he was circumcised. And then it says, and after Mary went through her ritual time of purification. All this stuff was there. And you can read about all of that in Leviticus 12. In Leviticus 12, it talks about when a woman gives birth to a baby boy. After eight days, he is to be circumcised. But she is to be purified for 33 days. And, and it says in, in Luke chapter 2 that she brought two turtle doves or two pigeons. And it says to, 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 to atone for her sin of loss of blood. And, and in Leviticus chapter 12, it says, after a woman gives birth to a boy, after 33 days, she is to bring a bull. But if she cannot get her hands on a bull, she is to bring two pigeons or two turtle doves to make an atonement for her sin of loss of blood. So Jesus, even from his birth, was, was keeping God's best way to live, showing the whole world what it looks like. Now, let me start going through some euphemisms here, some figures of speech that you see all the way through the Bible that will change the way you read it. The first one, and they're in no particular order of importance at all. They're, they're just, I just sort of listed them out, and uh, we'll get to them as we get to them, but it's not like one's more important than the other. First one, binding and loosing. Binding and loosing. It had nothing to do with devils. Or demons. Nothing to do with it. Now, if you are faced with a demon, say whatever you have to say to get it out. Don't get caught up in right, wrong, good, bad, whatever. Just say whatever you have to say. Rabbis didn't talk about things in terms of sin and not sin. You never see that. Rabbis talked in terms of light, dark, increase, decrease, life, death. This is how they talked. Why? Because sin and not sin, it's easy to rationalize things. But if you talk in terms of light and dark, increase and decrease, life and death, it's a whole lot harder to, it's a whole lot harder to get your head around things. It's a whole lot harder to, to rationalize. In other words, you know, light, are you a person of the light? Are you a person of the dark? Well, that, that's not, you know, that, that's a whole lot easier to, than saying, you know, have you killed somebody? Well, it's a whole lot easier if you just say it's a sin to kill somebody. It's a whole lot easier for somebody to say, well, I've never killed anybody, so I'm good. Jesus comes along and says, yeah, but have you hated anybody? Because hate is dark. Love is light. See, it was light, dark. So binding and loosing. Every rabbi 
had what was called a yoke. A rabbi's yoke was his way of interpreting scripture. It was his way of living. It was his, it was his way of, um, of, 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 of working out the things in the Torah and how to, how to live it out. It was his yoke. Jesus had a yoke. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke was easy and my burden is light. In other words, the way Jesus interprets scripture makes life easier for people. It doesn't put them in more bondage. God's goal was to get a group of slaves into freedom. So, so if his goal is to do that, then our goal should be setting people free. So, so Jesus says, listen, my burden, is, my, my, my burden is light. This is my yoke. Now, a rabbi's yoke had something called binding and loosing in it. To bind something meant to forbid it. To loose something meant to allow it. Okay? So uh, let, let, me give, let me give you some examples. Um, okay, the, the Torah forbidded work on the Sabbath. That was an absolute. No, you, you do not work on the Sabbath. Now, where's the open end there? How do you define work? So what does it mean to work? So the rabbis had to, in their yokes, define what work was through binding and loosing. So whatever rabbi you sat under, they would say, well, I bind you from doing this on the Sabbath, and I loose you to do this on the Sabbath. Okay? So you're, you're binding and loosing. You're, you're allowing or, or you're forbidding to do that. Now, this is very important. Jesus said, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is so important. If you're here today and you're a leader in your church or you're a pastor, listen to me very carefully because it's so important. What the people who follow you take their cues on how to live from what you bind and loose. Okay? And it is so powerful. But anything that powerful is also dangerous. Let me give you an example. I grew up in the South in America. The South is noted for its racial prejudice, okay? Even in the churches, okay? So in the 50s and 60s, and now it's, it's, now it's not, not so big of a deal, but, 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 but back in my grandmother's generation, see, my grandmother was an old-school Pentecostal holiness lady. Wonderful, weird people, okay? My grandmother has went on to be with the Lord now. But my grandma, I think she was 89 or so when she died. And in 89 years, she'd never cut her hair. She'd never worn makeup, never worn jewelry, never worn slacks, never worn any of these things. Why? Because her pastor bound it. You were forbidden to do these things. My, my grandmother would, would have thought, if, if, if I cut my hair, I, I, I'm endangering myself of hell. Why? Binding and loosing. Binding and loosing. My, my, my grandmother's pastor bound them from doing all kinds of things. But this is the silliness in it. He bound them from, if you're in the grocery store and your eye saw a bottle of wine, hell. If you put on slacks, hell. Cut your hair, hell. I was messing with her one day. I said, Granny, I'm going to get you all made up. It was her 82nd birthday. I said, listen, I'm going to get you all made up, take you out on a date. It's going to be fantastic. We're going to get you a nice haircut, get you all made up, get you dolled up. She said, oh, no. She said, I'd, I'd hate to send myself to hell and maybe someone else too. And I said, how would you send someone else to hell? She said, well, I'd hate to give a man a lustful thought. <laughs> it's like you're 82 years old. There hasn't been a lustful thought about you in years. What are you talking? Nothing's in the right place. What are you talking about? 
So here's a system that put an 80-something-year-old woman in bondage to fear of making a man have a lustful thought, but yet you could hate black people. That was okay. That was all right. It's binding and loosing. It's binding and loosing. So, so the people who followed that system had these huge... My grandmother loved God. I'm telling you, love God. Love. Get saved five times a day. Because every time you sin, God left. So you get saved five times a day. Then every night before she went to bed, she'd say something like, Lord, forgive me of all my sins today, both known and unknown. And anything I forgot to confess, please forgive me. If you come back tonight, take me. Like, it was this sort of thing. Like, their consciences were, if I wear pants, I am in trouble. But I can hate black people and have no worry. What is that? What is that? That is the power of binding and loosing. It's the power of binding and loosing. Listen, you are disciples of Jesus Christ. You're disciples of Jesus Christ. I don't have time to go into all this. But I can tell you, as a disciple of a rabbi, you have to teach his yoke. So you, you, me, we are bound to only bind what Jesus bound and only loose what Jesus loosed. And what did Jesus loose his, his followers to do ultimately? He, it was the greatness of a rabbi. There were 613 commands in Torah. It was the greatness of the rabbis to dumb it down into one. What did he say? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. Later, he dumbed it down into one. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my command. And this is my command. Love each other. In other words, God's not insecure. He can handle it. <laughs> But other people, they need you to love them. They need you to love them. So, so, so we are called to do that. Binding and loosing. So anytime in the scriptures you see binding and loosing, it's, it's talking about allowing something. You, you, you see this with Sabbath. Like, what is work? Like, what is work? In Acts 15, they were trying to work it out. They, they had a meeting and tried to work out, what, what is this, how, does this, how does this law that says, how does this best way to live that says it's a good idea to take a day off, and come on, is it a good idea to take one day and seven off? Hello? People say, do we have to keep that? Uh, can we have to, do we have to keep that? Well, n- for goodness sake, uh, you don't have to. It's probably your best plan. What are you going to do? You know? and, and remember, this was written to slaves, 430 years of slavery. When, when God handed this down and said, thou shalt take a day off, no one was thinking, oh no, it's the law. No, they were saying, wait a minute, we get a day off? We haven't had a day off in 430 years. This is fantastic. So they had to decide what was work, and they were trying to work it out. And remember, there was a big fight. There was a big fight. So this is all about binding and loosing. Uh, another euphemism. There's an old parable about the reed and the oak tree. It's an old Hebrew parable about the reed and the oak tree. You'll see images. You'll see references to it all through Scripture. And, and the parable of the reed and the oak tree basically is, um, it, it, it talks about this river, and there was an oak tree planted there, and there was a reed planted there. And it says, as the storm comes, the oak tree was big and mighty and could withstand many winds. But if the wind got really too violent, the oak tree would snap and, and, and go over. But the reed planted next to it, no matter, it would, it, would, it would wave to and fro, even in the lightest wind, but even in the heaviest wind, its flexibility was able to sustain its life. It's a pretty good lesson. Its flexibility was able to sustain its life. Obviously, the lesson is, if you're not willing to compromise, if you're not willing to, to sort of stretch and grow, eventually the storms of this life are going to take you out. In other words, if you can't roll with the punches... If you can't sort of, and so um, you see this, Jesus, Jesus says, I think it's Matthew 11, 
He's talking about John the Baptist. And he says, um, did you go to the desert to see a reed shaken in the wind? Because if you went to see that with John, you went to the wrong guy. You went to the wrong guy. John was this weird um, out there. He was the leader of the Essenes. He, he was a weird out there sort of prophet. Ate bugs and stuff. Didn't bathe. Things like this. And, and so Jesus says, you know, hey, did you go out to see a reed shaken in the wind? You might have missed the point. And so anytime in the scriptures you see references to, to reeds and, and, um, and oak trees, any, anything, anything like that, um, you're, you're, it's, it's a euphemism about that. So you've got binding and loosing. You've got the reed and the oak tree. Um, how about this one? Uh, whitewashed tombs. Whitewashed tombs. Jesus, I think it's Matthew 23, says, uh, You Pharisees, uh, you're nothing but a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Uh, what's he saying? Well, in, in Hebrew culture and in, in their law, um, it was illegal. It made you unclean to knowingly walk into the presence of a dead body. Okay? You just wouldn't do that. So to knowingly walk into the presence of a dead body um, uh, made, it, uh, made it illegal. They, they had a belief that um, when someone died, their spirit would hover over them for three days. But after three days, the resur- any idea of resurrection would be gone. And so they, they had this idea that, that that's why Lazarus's uh, resurrection was so unbelievable because he was dead before Jesus just came in and messed their whole system up, okay? So, so he, he was saying, you're just Joe and Jane. I'm going to fix this. Okay, so, um, so, so whitewashed tombs, he says, he says, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Remember now, in Hebrew culture, it, it was, it was um, if you just simply walked into the presence of someone who, um, who, was, who was dead, um, you were unclean. So what does Jesus say? Jesus is saying, just your mere presence around people is making them unclean. Um, do you realize just you being around is, is, is making them unclean? And he goes on and on. And then he says, he says, don't you know that you traverse land and sea trying to make one convert? But then when you get him, you make him twice the child of hell that you are? You're a whitewashed tomb. Uh, you're clean on the outside, but the inside of you is dead. And because it's dead, people just being around you, around your breath, around what God is in you. People being around that, you're making them unclean. You're making them unclean. It's a euphemism. So you've been whitewashed tombs. Um, how about this? We'll end, we'll end this session on this one. Uh, rending the garments. Rending the garments. Jesus said it this way. Um, Blessed are they that mourn, for they'll be comforted. Um, mourning was very important to Hebrew people. There was they, they, they had to do four things when they were mourning. If someone... They, they, they were next to someone they, they loved, they had a loved one die. They did four things. First, they put on sackcloth. The point was, I am willing to humble myself for your good. I'm willing to humble myself to identify with your pain. I'm willing to go through it with you. It's, it's actually one of the points of the cross. One of the points of the cross is forgiveness and all that. But one of the points of the cross is God screaming down from heaven, I understand suffering. You can never say to God, you don't know what I've been through. It was God's way of taking care of that. So sackcloth, two, was ashes. You might see sackcloth and ashes. Two was ashes. Once again, same idea. Once again, this is just a survey. I'm just briefly going over stuff. They're in detail over on the table. But but, but sackcloth and ashes was, the idea was, is that I am willing to humble myself and put pain on myself just simply to identify with yours. Sackcloth, ashes. They had something called sitting Shiva. Sitting Shiva. 
Um, you see this in Lazarus and in, in, in the stories of Lazarus. You see this all through the Bible. All these things are stuff you see all through the Bible because it was all through their culture. Sitting Shiva um, was um, when someone died, you were required to sit with them for seven days. And you were not allowed, you were not with the body, with the family, okay? You, you, were, you were supposed to sit with this family for seven days. And you were not allowed to speak unless you were spoken to, which is brilliant, isn't it? It takes all the pressure off you from having to comfort, and it takes all the pressure off them from having to entertain. They could simply be with each other. The sitting, Shiva. The fourth thing they would do is rend their garments. They would tear their garments in half. Once again, I'm identifying with your pain. In, in Hebrew culture, it, 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 was, it would have been shameful to, to, to expose. You know, so so they're, they're saying, I, I'm, willing, I'm willing to humble myself even to the point of exposing myself to, to help you through your moment. To help you through the moment. Now, where do you see all this in Scripture? You see this a lot of places. But the one that should speak to us the most is when Jesus died. When Jesus died. There was all this mourning. But when Jesus died, it says this. That the moment he died, the temple veil tore in two. What was the temple veil? What did it veil? It veiled the glory of God. The temple veil was God's clothes. It was what kept him from exposing his full glory to people. So when God's son died, what did God do? He tore his garment. He said, I'm going to mourn the death of my son by tearing my garment. And when I tear my garment, it's going to expose everything I am to the whole world. This will be a revolution that will teach people you do not have to sacrifice any more. God is pleased with you. It's the rending of the garments. It's the rending of the garments. Let's pray together. Lord, um, we're humbled um, by you and we just simply proclaim your king and that... We openly in our heart acknowledge that we're just Joe and Jane. Uh, we really don't have a clue. And we're just humbly seeking your face. We're humbly seeking the heart of our God together. Lord, would you, um, in that heart, would you reveal yourself to us that we could live a little bit more uh, like Jesus called us to live. And we would show the world what you look like. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>